Good afternoon and welcome back to 154 Forum. I'm Karen Greenberg and I've organized this four-day program which is dedicated to the late uh, Nigerian curator B.C. Silver. It is a great honor to have been able to utilize this platform to pay tribute and homage to a, a superb mentor, somebody who held us all to account. She was incredibly critical of uh, what we all did, and I think we're better people and better practitioners for that uh, engagement. The people on this panel all were very involved uh, with ASICO, and for those of you who've been with us the past couple of days, you will have heard about ASICO in passing on numerous occasions. And this is really an opportunity to dive in deep and try and understand what it was that about ASICO that made it so radical, so critically important to everybody, both the uh, artists and the, and the aspirant curators, but also the faculty who had the privilege of participating in that program. The previous session today was uh, really focused on how we transform and build new institutions in Africa. And by that I mean physical structures. We had Ibrahim Mahama talking about the SCCA that he's built in uh, Tamale in Ghana, a really impressive physical space for arts education and artist practice. Um, and then Nontebek on Tombella talking about the transformation within the South African sort of pedagogical system, particularly from her vantage point of the Witwatersrand, excuse me, the Witwatersrand um, University. So what I think is going to be very interesting is to hear from our guest speakers about a SICO, which didn't have a physical place. Uh, indeed, it was, uh, it was the opposite of that, uh, the fact that it was roaming, that it was pan-African, that made it so so completely different to the other mo models of pedagogy that we're familiar with. Um, I'd like to just take a moment to introduce our speakers and then I'll hand over very quickly because of course we all want to hear what they've had to say. Um, but I want to especially say a very big thank you to Eddie for coming all the way from the US, from Austin I believe, <laughs> and uh, Shuda from coming from Delhi. Uh, what's well. been... <laughs> Competition, yeah, I came from North London. <laughs> uh, what, what I think was one of the most extraordinary things about BC is that she brought people together from all walks of life and from very different places and um, brought experiences together in, in a way that was very collegial and collaborative and generative. And so the fact that you both felt it significantly important enough to come all this way to share your experiences with us, I think is testament to that power. So thank you for, for that. Um, our moderator today is Tamar Garb, and um, for those of you who'd like to know more about BC, please do read the exceptional tribute that Tamar wrote um, on BC's passing and published on Artthrob. I'd also like to point you to a little booklet that we've produced that's at available at the back of the room that you can pick up called Dedicated to BC that incorporates many voices of people who were close to her. Um, Tamar is Derning Lawrence Professor in the History of Art at UCL in London. Her research interests have focused on questions of gender and sexuality, the women artist and the body in 19th and early 20th century French art, and she has published extensively in this field. But before she was an expert on French art, she was born in South Africa, and that has been really um, a very strong part of her more recent academic work. She has published on questions of race and representation and written about contemporary artists, including Nancy Spiro, Christian Boltanski, and Mona Hatoum. As I mentioned, her interests more recently have turned to post-apartheid, 
culture and art, as well as the history of photographic practices in South Africa. And it's this that really took her um, to participating in ASICOV. Um, right alongside me is Eddie Chambers, who is a professor in the Department of Art and Art History at the University of Texas in Austin, where he has been since 2010 teaching African diaspora art history. His education includes a PhD in history of art from Goldsmiths College um, here, awarded in 1998 for his doctoral research, Black Visual Arts Activity in England, between 1981 and 1986, Press and Public Responses. His scholarship includes Black Artists and British Art, a history since the 1950s, uh, Roots and Culture, Cultural Politics and the Making of Black Britain, published in 2016, and he has two forthcoming books. So you're obviously a busy man. <laughs> um, a companion to African-American art history and World is Africa. So uh, please take note of those and look them up as soon as they're out. On the far left, we have Shuda Brata Sengupta, who's an artist and writer and member of Rux Media Collective, a group that combines research, historical and philosophical inquiry and contemporary art. In 2002, Sengupta co-initiated Sarai, a platform for discursive partnerships between theorists, researchers, practitioners, and artists engaged in reflecting on contemporary urban spaces and cultures in South Asia at the Center for the Study of Developing Societies in Delhi. Uh, Rax Media Collective's work, you probably will have seen in many places, um, most notably Documenta 11 in Kassel in 2009, the 10th International Istanbul Biennial in 2007, the 51st Venice Biennale in 2005, and many other places besides. So thank you very much for joining us. We're very much looking forward to hearing more about ASICO from the perspective of three people who are so intimately involved in it. Thank, thank you, Karen, and thanks all of you for coming. And one of the great gifts, really, of ASICO was that um, you get to meet extraordinary people. And um, for all of us who've actually been involved in the programme and were involved in the programme over the years, the relationships that we forged uh, with the participants, with other facilitators, with the guest speakers, were really one of the great, great legacies. And I think I met Eddie in Accra uh, when, we, right, yeah. Yeah, when we first, um, that was my first ASICO, and I met uh, Shida. That was mine as well. I think, yeah. I think that was my first one. And I met Shida in Addis, which was my last, in <laughs> fact, the last one. That was my one. last one as well. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so it, did, it did enable us, it's not just about you know, name dropping and cliques, it's really about a series of networks which are global, centered in Africa, and very much bringing people together across the continent, but also intersecting in extremely important ways with Africa's diasporas and with people who work from elsewhere, and um, bringing those into a very productive conversation um, with one another in a, in a critically very, very uh, interesting and self-reflective way. So, so for me, that has been one of the joys of my life. And the day that I met BC Silva, I think I can really say, changed my life in, in a very, very, very fundamental way. So I'm going to, we've decided that I'm just going to say a, for a, a little bit about ASICO because people have been talking about it a lot over the couple of days, but not everybody is familiar with it as a pedagogic experiment. So I think I'm going to start just by describing what ASICO is and spend a little a bit of time doing that. And then um, Shula and Eddie are going to talk about their own experiences and then we're going to open it up for conversation. I also wanted to draw your attention to this wonderful and very experimental uh, volume that uh, was brought out in 2017, which is called ASICO. You've got, the, you've got it up on the screen there, um, which really in itself as a publication mirrors some of the experimental and open-ended nature of ASICO as a pedagogic 
uh, environment. Um, it involves writing, writings by artists, involves picture pages, it involves critical um, discourses, art historical materials, programs of all the ASICO uh, events, etc. So it is an extraordinary resource. And in preparation for today, I decided to just have a quick look at my own piece that I wrote for it. Some years ago, I wrote it um, when I hadn't yet got to Addis because you know, it took a long time to publish. But I just wanted to read you my fir the first two sentences, um, which goes like this. I first went to Accra to teach, but in the end, I learned much more than I was able to impart. And then the, I go on to talk about the false separation between teaching and learning. Because that's one of the crucial, I think, um, lessons really of ASICO is that everybody is there both to teach and to learn. And we all teach and learn from different kinds of experiences and different kinds of practices. So one of the radical things that it did is to break apart those kinds of um, institutionalized uh, relationships. It was founded though by BC um, in 2010 as this roaming art school that would be in a different city um, every year across the African continent in order to redress some of what she saw as the real weaknesses of art education across the continent. And these were not only about access and provision and, you know, money and resources. It was also about the habits of mind and the histories of pedagogy that she saw as characterizing the way that art practice, art theory, art criticism, curating, etc., was understood within African universities, many of which still live with their own their old colonial habits of thinking, old colonial ways of organizing curricula, of privileging certain materials and certain media. A certain kind of antipathy perhaps to contemporary art, mobilizing a notion of what African art might be in big inverted commas without necessarily having a kind of critical reflection on that. Now, of course, this is a big generalization and there are universities across the continent, and I'm familiar of the ones in South Africa mostly, who have taken this on as we saw from the previous panel. But when she set this up in 2010, and in fact, we all, I think, experienced this in working with the participants from all over the continent, that you know, people came having learned the habits of being an impressionist painter in Kumasi, or they had come with learning their understanding of African modernism via the sculptures of Brancusi. There were lots and lots of ways in which many of the teachers in many of the art schools across Africa had been trained in Europe and brought back those European conventions, pedagogic conventions, into the African Academy. And this is true too for humanities in general and art history. And Bissi was extremely exercised by this and very, very keen to try to find an African-centered alternative way of thinking about what an art education might be at the same time as not being totally localized and small-minded and blinkered from the rest of the world. So what would it be to think about practices located on the continent, which took account of those histories and those traditions and didn't throw out babies with the bathwater, et cetera, but at the same time was able to imagine what a pedagogic experience might be that was located in Africa. She was also extremely um, 
uh, exercised by the fact that all sorts of things that we would recognize as contemporary art media, lens-based practices, performance, experimental media, multimedia practices, conceptual art, these did, were not embedded for the most part in art schools as she understood them in the university system. It was much, much more tradition. They were much more traditionally focused on skills, whether they were carving or modeling or painting or weaving or whatever. So she was interested in opening up to question the notion, the category of African art, traditional notions of skill, traditional practices, and bringing the technologically driven, innovative practices that we associate with contemporary art into conversation with those practices. It was not that those practices were not important, those practices have their huge histories and she was more interested than anybody I know in uncovering and working with those traditions and histories and techniques and skills and material practices. But at the same time, thinking about them alongside technologies of the now, in a, uh, you know, these are very, very connected places. Everybody's on their mobile phones. Everybody's using internet. Everybody, I, one of the things that always, that struck me from my first Asika was that there wasn't a person sitting at the table without their Mac. And everybody's connected and the world is totally, totally in the room at the same time as you're located in Accra or in Dakar or wherever you are. You are simultaneously in multiple places at once. So she was very interested in how you could harness those, you know, very, very valued skills, some of them European-derived, some of them from local and old and interesting uh, traditions that could go back right back to pre-colonial times of casting and making and weaving and plaiting and whatever, but to think of them alongside the technologies that are identifiable as contemporary. She hated the, the, the notion of um, contemporary African art. She liked to talk about contemporary art from Africa. So this idea that there might be, you know, something um, called contemporary African art as, uh, as if, uh, you know, Africa was not the space of the contemporary, but contemporary art happened elsewhere. She liked this idea that rather think of contemporary art from Africa, you can get contemporary art from Italy, contemporary art from, you know, New York, but you can also get contemporary art from, uh, from Accra. So she was very interested in thinking about what it was to think with the contemporary. So how did she set about doing this? So she was located in uh, Lagos. This is where she, this was, um, well, she lived in multiple homes, both here and in Lagos and everywhere else. But she set up this center called the Center for Contemporary Art in Lagos in 2007. And one of the things she discovered in working in Lagos in that situation um, was that you know, she could provide an exhibition space, she could provide a library. It is now the most extensive library of contemporary African art in the world. It has, a, I can't remember, 20, 30,000 books, extraordinary pamphlets and catalogues <coughs> and everything. It is the place to go if you want to study um, uh, contemporary art on the continent. So she set up CCA Lagos and soon discovered that if she was going to actually get anywhere in transforming the pedagogic environment and the cultural landscape in which art was produced now, she needed to go beyond working just in Lagos. She needed to draw people in from the whole of the continent and she needed to develop an experimental laboratory come encounter group come art school. That's the way I think of it as a sort of interface of all those different kinds of structures. So she set up um, you know, she got the funding, etc. She sent out these open calls in order to get people to apply 
to come to the um, program and people from across the continent would make their applications, would send in their portfolios, would send in a proposal. And very, very early on, she understood that in order to create a very interesting environment for critical discourse, you needed to have artists in the company of curators, critics, writers, museum professionals, uh, art historians, and everybody else. So she opened the program up to curators and artists. And it's the first, it was the first experimental curatorial school in Africa drawing curators from all over the continent who worked and lived alongside practitioners. And opening up this question of what a practice is was part of what the conversation was about always in these environments. So nothing was taken for granted. Everything was open um, to question and habits of thought are constantly being challenged. And the way they get, yeah, this was what we were supposed to have gone to in 2018 to Cape Verde, but BC was too ill. That was where the next, the next Asika was going to be that, that never happened. The last one was in Accra. We're hoping that some people are going to take the mantle on the continent and are going to work with this, um, this uh, uh, idea and that, you know, it's not going to, um, it's not going to end. But this is an ongoing discussion. And in fact, when BC chose, um, Cape Verde, we had long discussions about that. And I'm going to show, would you, would you mind showing a little video? Because you'll see what, this is busy talking when we were together in Addis about what uh, it is to cite this uh, experimental environment in different places. Just going to see the little video and then I'll talk to you about Cape Verde and why that interested her. Yes, to exchange dialogue and collaborate with our colleagues across Africa. We started off with Ghana, but the idea was to go to an Anglophone country, a Francophone country, a Lusophone country. As a result, we went to Accra in 2013, Dakar in 2014, Maputo in 2015, and of course, we had to finish in um, Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, in the only country in Africa that hasn't been colonized, but also the seat of the African Union, where all of us meet um, um, and interact and dialogue and collaborate excuse me we've had 16 participants okay so that's just a clip this was at the final exhibition in the Addis um, iteration of Asiko of busy talking and, um, and you hear her her in incredible expansiveness I mean this idea of choosing all these different language traditions and then of course we were dealing as well with many many local languages so there is the whole, there was a huge self-consciousness about the fact of, that one was describing this in terms of colonial languages. At the same time, in every single one of these environments, you were dealing with people who most of whom spoke two or three languages, one or two um, local languages, and at least another language, French or Italian or English or whatever it was, uh, um, you know, that, that, that was part of the, the, the legacy of the place. Cape Verde interested her a lot as an island culture. Yesterday we had a really fascinating panel about islands, actually. But anyway, um, and she was interested in whether, you know, how you could think about this. It wasn't on the land mass of the continent itself. It's in the ocean. You know, how does it regard itself in relation to Africa and Africanness? And questioning and opening up the category of what Africanness is, was always part of the whole program. And one of the things that I think, again, was incredibly instructive for all of us was that you realized, I mean, this, this, the notion of Africa itself is such, of course, a, a, an invention. 
because people came from so many different cultures to participate in these programs. Many of them couldn't speak each other's languages. Sometimes we were translating from French to English. Uh, sometimes people were speaking among themselves in groups in local languages. Um, many people had never traveled beyond their countries. She worked very hard to get scholarships for people to come. Some people had never traveled before. Some people traveled in bus, by bus across the continent for days to get to wherever we were gathering. People came from situations, some were quite well resourced, they'd come from Johannesburg, some had no resources at all. And the first, one of the things that was so extraordinary was in the first few days, this monolith of the concept of Africa is troubled in all sorts of ways. So you were both invoking it and thinking about it critically, but on the continent realizing the multiple different realities and differences became part of the curriculum insofar as there's a curriculum at all. Um, so if, it, if there wasn't an actually fixed curriculum, there was a very fixed rhythm to the day. And Bissy was extreme, there was nothing haphazard or lackadaisical about how the days were structured. You didn't just come and hang out and make some work if you wanted to. It was extremely tough, extremely rigorous, and you were subject to her razor-sharp tongue in every single crit. People would be, it was always, it was amazing, I suppose it's a kind of art school thing, you break people down, you build them up, they build each other up, they work together. But the day was extremely carefully structured. And it consisted of a whole series of, you would sit around a table, everybody with their laptops, busy in the front, the various facilitators who came from all over the world, you'd go for about a week or 10 days. So over the five weeks that Asiko met, there would be a roving collection of external facilitators who came from all over the world with their own expertise to share and to work in dialogue with the participants. You'd sit around like this, um, talking extremely intensely. One of the things that she also felt very strongly was that um, the university system was not theoretically driven very much, and that practitioners across the continent were not, she thought, sufficiently um, uh, au fait with, with critical writing and philosophy and art history. So there was always a text-based seminar. You know, God forbid you didn't read your text and come to the class prepared. It was very, very um, rigorous. You went through the text. She would put people on the spot. People did presentations. It's very much like that group <coughs> participation, uh, group uh, presentations, etc. And then also these would be interwoven with every day different people would present their work, would do presentations on their work. And they would then be subject to incredibly rigorous crits by the whole group. So you, and in each one of these, the kinds of issues that were opened up to question were not necessarily issues that many of the participants had really encountered before. So questions of gender, questions of sexuality, the whole issues around colonialism and neo-colonialism, big, big questions around identity and language, people really being pushed to think about their own practice in relation to where they came they come from, how they navigate the situation they come from with, you know, broader trends. You know, if you started to use, for example, I don't know if you remember this, um, 
in, in Addis, a lot of people work with hair. You know, mm. hair is a big thing, as obviously. But if you didn't know that Ellen Galahad worked with hair and Lorna Simpson had worked with hair and this person there had worked with hair, Bissy was there and everybody was there and the facilitators were there to push you in ways so that you were thinking about yourself. If you only worked with Lorna Simpson and Ellen Galahad, she would say, why are you using African-American women artists as your model? Where do you mm. come from? What does hair mean where you come from? So you were constantly being pushed between thinking about the resources, intellectual, physical, material, linguistic, cultural, that were local to you as a practitioner, and the whole world was available to you as a huge repository of information, influence, etc. So it was extremely expansive in these ways. It would go from these text-based seminars to these presentations, and then um, in... There were also these, were, this was Ngoni Fang um, talking. There were also, as I say, these visiting scholars and visiting curators um, who came to talk, and there would always be a, a formal presentation like that. And then there was always reading time and library time. This is from the CCA Library in Lagos, but reading and research was an absolutely crucial part of the whole process. Then there would be all the visits. Wherever you were, if you were in Ghana, you would be sure to go to various important sites, whether the sites where the, the enslaved people were first taken into the, or first taken from the castle out on the boats, or um, whether it was in Maputo with, you know, uh, Samora Michelle, or there's, there's uh, I think, Shida and Chibesh going off to the, the Organization of African Unity in, in Addis. So there was always a interaction with local um, sites and a whole series of outings, etc. <coughs> visits to artist studios, wherever we, wherever you were as well. And this all together made up a diet. And the bus, the bus was a crucial thing. We spent a lot of time in the bus, which turned into a mobile seminar. Wherever you were, going to these um, uh, places. So. Everything culminated at the end of the period. People lived together for five weeks or so. That culminated in the exhibition, which would be worked at as a collaboration between the curatorial participants and the artistic participants. I brought with just two of the little catalogues of the shows that were made. This one from Addis, one from Maputo. Um, highly experimental. You only had a month to make things in. People had to get to know each other. There were huge fights and debates and discussions about how that was going to work. Um, people's whole lives were really at stake. And, and there is, that's why I said it was also like an encounter group, because the emotional interactions were extremely um, intense. People left children at home, partners at home for five or six weeks, had saved up for, you know, a for a long time to come, and there was a huge amount at stake. But the, the, if you look at the alumni of the ASICA program, I mean, so many extraordinarily interesting and very, very visible artists now on the global map uh, came through ASICA. But BC, at the same time, was not interested in people just making straight for the Biennales. She was totally, totally fixated on the fact that your prime responsibility was feeding back into an African location <coughs> from which you came. So people were always being pushed about how one navigated the world and what the role of Africa would ultimately be. And she herself was a complete exemplar of that because, um, you know, having been born in Nigeria, educated in London and in Paris, a total global citizen, she chose in 2007 to locate herself and center herself in Lagos, from which she functioned. 
So that's just an introduction to it as a program. Lots more will come up in our discussion. Um, I'm going to ask which of you wants to go first. Oh, why don't you go first, Eddie? Seeing okay. as, yeah, and sure. your right. image will come up. I okay, think. thank you. Thank you. I only have the, the one image to share, which hopefully, yeah, that's it. So we'll come up. It's, no, it's up there now. Oh. Right, okay. Um, that was great. Uh, I mean, that, that kind of covered so many points actually to us. So <laughs> you've, just, you've just left me a few, <laughs> a few small things to, to try and contribute, uh, but the, that was wonderful to, to have that kind of such a substantial overview. So thank you very much. Um, I think the first thing I want to say is, um, wasn't, it, wasn't the whole initiative so, so, so incredible? I mean, such an original idea, such a, a fabulous idea, kind of thinking, it's extraordinary thinking to kind of come up with the idea of a roving art school across Africa. It's, it's, um, it's so fantastic. I mean, as in out of this world <laughs> to think, to, to conceive the idea and not only to conceive it, but to execute it. So this speaks of, a, this speaks of an uncommon brilliance of, in terms of being able to think about an idea and bring this idea, however, however kind of um, extraordinary, however kind of wild it is in some respects, however much, however, uh, 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 um, uh, it thinks outside of the box. It's thinking of things in this, these kind of astonishing ways, these kind of surreal ways. And BT was there to kind of not only conceive the idea, but to make it happen. You know, this is, this is extra, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's very hard for us to think, uh, think of a project that has an equivalence in some respects. I mean, this was so unusual. Um, I think that's the, the first point that I wanted to re re reiterate in some respects. I mean, it's a point you made, made tomorrow, but I wanted to reiterate that. Um, the, 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 Next point, I feel like I, I must I must make about about the the initiative was was um, the extraordinary amount of work that went into it. It's like I mean we can hardly conceive of, of somebody working with a small team um, c um, being able to kind of execute such a project. I mean the the, the amount the logistics. of logistics. Yes, exactly the amount of logistics, as you say, and organisation work that went into it. Um, I mean we can hardly fathom. Um, um, Travel, visas, place to stay, hotels, funding. We uh, we know, or some of us uh, will know this firsthand, or, or have experience of this. That um, traveling from one country in Africa to another is hardly ever a straightforward matter. You know, so it's not really set up for kind of easy travel. You know, it's like. Um, you know, even to travel to a neighbouring country, let alone a country that's thousands of miles away, whether it's east, west, north or south or central Africa, um, 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 uh, one, has to, one has to secure a, vi a visa. Inev invariably, one has to secure a visa for the country to which one wants to travel. Um, um, that's, that is, of course, a challenge. You know, the, 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 the securing of passports, the securing of visas... It's not necessarily, in all instances, a, a straightforward matter. I mean, in some nations and some circumstances, it's easier than others, but it's a challenge. BC was aware of these challenges, and she rolled her sleeves up, and she got stuck into, into, into to these matters. Um, 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 I've mentioned about travel, how difficult it is, and, of course, you, you mentioned tomorrow about um, the means 
the means um, certain people resorted to or or had recourse to perhaps uh, in terms of in terms of moving from their respective their, their respective countries to the workshops um, um, travel is a major course we know that travel intercontinental travel within Africa is is sometimes a cha is oftentimes a challenge it's not it's not easy and of course the cost is based very significant so if one is in Addis and wants to travel one wants to travel to Lagos this is no this is no small matter this is no easy e e easy matter um, BC BC was aware I mean of course she did more than her share of intercontinental travel but uh, she was aware of these challenges and so she and her team were working with people to see what they could do to make these things happen um, um, the places that people stayed in this was another major challenge you know where could which spaces could could BC and her team have recourse to in which fairly large number of artists could kind of spend this kind of intensive time with each other um, and also for, for those of us who are visiting faculty um, um, what kind of hotels or what kind of other spaces could could we stay in but it, it's a phenomenal amount of work went into all these things <laughs> um, um, and the the other thing that uh, has to be mentioned in that regard is the is um, funding um, you know it's uh, it's um I suppose all depending on which country one is one's um, uh, one's referring to or one's uh, one's uh, yeah one's identifying, but um, it's it's hard it's it's harder to get project for a kind of a pan African sorry it's harder to get funding for a pan African project than it is for funding for one country. You know, it's like it's like the ways in which the 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 the, uh, the, the various you know the, there's a, the the ways in which which Africa is. Evolved as a as a continent of, uh, um, um, post independence, that, 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 that I think many countries see themselves in as kind of siloed units uh, where their their infrastructure, their connections to even neighbouring countries um, are to be kept in check. You know, they 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 are not to be. You know, um, 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 uh, the, the the structures the structures that keep keep countries in in, in in sealed sealed parameters almost these 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 need to be need to be kept in check so to rate to, to raise money to undertake projects that kind of um, um, kind of overcome these borders um, this is hugely important um, um, and this is it's a testament it's a testimony to the project and its success is that funding one way or the other, was found um, um, to make these projects happen. So the pan-African nature of this is hugely important, and it's, it's something that we can't we can't really under underestimate. Um, one thing I wanted to say, one thing I wanted to, to say uh, to put out to put out there is, I want us to think about modern and contemporary art in Africa, vis-a-vis -vis historical, more historical work or more historical art i think it's you, 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 unesco um i mean of course i mean we always have to be careful with with figures um figures can often trip us up and they can often let us down um, um but i think it was unesco that um estimated that about 95 percent of african art and 
artifacts and historical objects were no longer on the continent. Mm. Um, um, so, I mean, let's imagine. I mean, let's imagine that this is an overstatement. Um, I mean, it may well not be, and and w w we have we have many reasons to think that maybe it's an understatement. Um, but I mean, let's imagine it's an overstatement, and let's let's um, shave off x amount of that. Um, let's say sixty percent. Um, um, this, this points up to one of the challenges that audiences within the African continent have in terms of how do they get access to things that are part of their historical heritages um, um, when these objects are more likely to be in Washington, D.C., or New York, or London, or Paris, or Berlin, or whatever. Um, the wholesale exporting or the wholesale theft in some, in some respects the, whole, the wholesale taking away from the African continent of so much um, art, artifacts, objects. Um, um, it, has a, it has a cost. There's a, there's a material cost to this that leaves the people of the continent disadvantaged, dispossessed in some respects of important cultural aspects of their, of their, ident of their respective or various, various identities. My fear is that modern and contemporary art of Africa looks to be heading the same direction mm. um, because infrastructures within the continent are often so lacking. Um, if we had to identify um, um, movements in modern and contemporary African art from the mid-20th century to the present, the one thing that we, we perhaps most notice is we notice the, the exporting from the continent of artists and arts and um, so on. Um, now, of course, we have to balance this. We have to we have to temper this with this realization or this um, um, assertion, correct assertion that um, artists should be free to to um, to pursue whatever opportunities, whether it's sales or exhibitions or scholarship or research on their practice. Anything an artist wishes to to have a priority, to prioritise in terms of their own practices, they ought to be free to, to, to do so. My, my feeling is that this should not come at the expense of audiences and infrastructure within the continent. I mean, as in, as in leaving short people. That, you know, like, so um, we have fabulous opportunities to see modern and contemporary African art, um, 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 but for the most part, we need to go outside the continent. I mean, South Africa is probably the, 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 the yeah, yeah, the exception, mm -hmm. and of course, there are problematic <laughs> reasons for that exception. Um, um, the, one of the great things about BC's project was, project was that this was an attempt to build an infrastructure within within the continent. Yeah. You know, this is this is what made it so so important. I mean, as you say, 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 uh, you know, this is like this is something which is very much Africa centric. You know, and 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 we can't underestimate the importance of that. Um, um, let's see, my other notes. Um, so, you, w one thing you you'd mentioned was about this idea of of learning. You know, because I I also made notes along those lines. You know, because because. Um, the, one of the great things about about the mobile workshop initiative uh, was that it it had no time for this idea of people from outside quote unquote coming in as quote unquote experts mm -hmm. 
you know, this was not, you know, it's like we, we're, used to, we're used to this mindset, you know, it's a perpetual mindset and it now passes as common sense in, in so many, in so, amongst so many people in so many places that um, Africa is in need of, it's in need of things, you know, it's in need of experts from outside to come in and do this, that and the other, you know. Um, clearly it's a problematic mindset and it's a, a nonsensical mindset, um, um, but it's, it's such a dominant way of thinking, this idea that, that there are people who can be brought in and they can, they can say, well, this is, how, this is how to do something or this is how we do it in some other part of the world. Beta had no time for those, for those ideas. So I, um, I was very much struck by the ways in which, for the, three, for the three, th three kind of iterations that I went to, I was very much struck that I was doing so much learning, you know, I was there, I was there to learn, you know, um, um, as much as I was there to, to do anything else, you know, so it was a wonderful, was, uh, in the, you know, three, three times I went, you know, it was like, it's a wonderful experience to kind of learn from, learn, learn from, um, uh, to learn things that I would not, I would not otherwise be able to learn, you know, it's like to be with artists, to be with, 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 um, with people who are emerging as, curators and writers, you know, to share ideas with them. This is not, uh, me, well, this is not me talking to them. <laughs> this is us talking, uh, talking amongst ourselves, you know. Can I just say something in relation to that, which I forgot to say, which was so important for Bissy, was the one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. That was the other thing that happened in the day. So in addition to these seminars and discussions, etc., it was always the opportunity for every participant and every facilitator to have these intense one-on-one -on -one encounters. And I think right. those were often the spaces in which, you know, one was both... It was a dialogical process, wasn't it? Yes, yes, so absolutely. Sort of in just relation to what you were saying. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so we know this is in some ways... This, this is a condition that we can relate to in various parts of the world, this idea of artists working working in relative or absolute isolation. Mm. I mean, we know that, you know, I mean, so mm. many artists work without necessary, sorry, they work without, without necessary recourse to colleagues in any kind of structured sense. Um, um, so the workshops was also were also very challenging because they brought together people who, had this very intensive contact with each <coughs> other, sharing each other's work, obviously to share work, one is vulnerable to a certain extent, you know, I mean, it's like, it's not necessarily easy to share work um, in a kind of a critical space. I mean, one can hang work in a gallery and one can be pleased to, to have that opportunity, um, but to pull up a slide of an image of one's, one's work and to have to justify it in some respects, you know, to, to have to talk about it and to have to, and, and to, and to not to be able to not to be able to avoid very searching questions um, 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 about the ways in which the work was made or whatever. This was a, this was quite a um, uh, this is quite a challenging process in, in lots of respects. And of course, you know, I mean, um, um, you know, I remember from my my days at art school many 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 decades ago. You know, that the crit was the, the crit was um, something that. You know, left um, left students Lip kind scars. of yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so you know, there was something of that, yeah. of that. Um, and as you say, you know, um, BC she expected people to um, um, 
if not know their stuff, um, um, learn their stuff. <laughs> you know? So she was very keen on people. She was very keen on people knowing the broader context of what they were talking about. Absolutely. You know, uh, and I think this is a fundamentally important yeah. point. You know. Um, um, can I, can I ask Shudder to come in now? Yeah, that's fine. No, 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 that, that's absolutely fine. I'm done. Of course, of course, of course. Go on then, Shudder, and then we'll open it up for discussion afterwards. Thank you. Thank you, both of you, for your um, presentations and your, the way in which you brought back Asiko and its experience to me. <clears throat> I'm particularly struck by your uh, evocation of the care that BC took, both of your presentations, a book, of of a certain kind of worldliness, which is a very rare quality. Uh, normally one thinks of worldliness in terms of people who are able to get things done or fix things. But I have a, I have a much more elevated understanding of what that means. It means the ability to understand and navigate a complex world and to make <coughs> worlds wherever one goes. And I think BC, um, not only had that, but she had the ability to teach people how to be worldly in that extraordinarily beautiful way. I remember very clearly this question of negotiating the difficulty of students coming from different parts of Africa. And I actually went with her for a meeting where she was trying to persuade a gentleman in the Ethiopian government that they should give a visa to a student who was stuck at the airport. And she did, she, the enormous force of her personality was much more evident in the way she dealt with a high-ranking bureaucrat. It had, none of the, it had none of the maternal gentleness that we saw otherwise. She was a person who was insistent that the Ethiopian government live up to its commitments to the African Union. And it made me remember a work that, that an artist did at the Asiko, which was just the creation of an African passport. And as um, Tamar mentioned, we, we spent time at the Organization of African Unity headquarters. And it was an occasion for everyone to pose with a map of Africa, this mm -hmm. beautiful golden map of Africa. And we did a group photograph, and people took selfies. But one of the students made this passport, the Republic of Africa passport, which is one of my most treasured possessions still today, because that is the passport that I want for myself and for all seven billion people on the planet. Because of the reason that I think that I learned, and my colleague Jibesh who was with me and I, we learned this, we have had an intellectual understanding of what being planetary means for a long time. It's a part of our work in rocks. But to get a existential, emotional, effective understanding of what planetariness means is something that occurred to me personally when I was in uh, Addis Ababa with uh, BC Silva, with you, and with all the wonderful artists we met there. That's why the Republic of Africa passport, as someone who hates passports, has a meaning for me. Because it's if one has to understand the world in all its complexity, I think a lot of effort has to be made 
to understand it through the prism of Africa. It's where we all come from. We used to always joke about the fact that we are all Africans at the end of the day. But, but more seriously, I, I could see Asiko as part of a tradition of locating intellectual and artistic and, and the world of thought in histories in uh, the, the enormous intellectual corpus in Mali, for instance, where there were great libraries, or in Morocco, where the earliest universities were founded, and founded by women like, like Bisi. Um, in my part of the world, in Delhi, we remember a great scholar and traveler, Ibn Battuta, who described for us the nature of the world when he traveled from <coughs> Saharan Africa to Delhi in the 14th century. So he brought the world to my part of the world. And it's that sense of worldliness, of what it meant to be the exact opposite of being insular, being provincial, being locked into some kind of you know, status of being the victim of colonialism. It was to reclaim the centrality of Africa as a way of thinking about the whole world and to insist that that is the first place from which we must think about the whole world. That was BC's gift to me. Um, that's Tamar and BC. It's a pair of... <laughs> um, and I think it tells you so much about also the fact that she never saw herself as this lone star. She was always in conversation, always in contact, always building a network and very conscious about the fact that these relationships don't just have pasts, they have futures. And I can say that for myself that in our practice in Rucks, where we sometimes wear a hat as curators as well, some of the most productive conversations that we've had with the next generation of curators, we always try to work with younger curators, has been with with in exceptional intelligences from Africa, from Ghana, from South Africa. And this came to us through the Asiko experience. So that in our remaking of what an international contemporary art map of the world today is, we understand that that needs to take, first of all, give primacy to the people who are thinking about the world from Africa. Um, I always think about this. This is Ethiopian coffee, and it has this particular herb that they put in the coffee. It's called Than Adam, which means the health of Adam. And it completely transforms the coffee by giving it a certain aroma and a kick and, a, and an aftertaste. And I think that something like Asiko is able to do that. It transforms a, a milieu by adding in a sense, a kind of spice, which, which makes us think about the flavor of what we're doing differently. I can honestly say that being part of a 27-year-old collective art practice, there are, which travels a lot, goes to a lot of places. We don't often have life-transforming experiences. And being in Asiko was one of them. Again, not that we were teaching, but we were also mm -hmm. absorbing through these conversations a reassessment of who we were and what we were doing. Um, 
this is, of course, again, an ASICO classroom uh, and people hard at work thinking about what they're supposed to do. And often these would be spaces of confrontation both within the classroom and outside. And because we used to have these one-on-one -on -one sessions, I think we had a ringside view of some of these confrontations. There's one that I remember quite particularly. A very gifted student was also a devout Catholic from the Republic of Congo. And the person he became very close to and attached to was a young woman who he figured out was queer. And in his difficult negotiation between what he saw as, his cent as central to his understanding of himself because of his faith and his newfound friendship with a person whom he would have otherwise thought of as consigned to hell, in my one-on-one -on -one interactions with both of them, we had to negotiate a sense of how to become more than whom we were before. And I think it changed him, it changed her, and it certainly changed me. Now, this is not the kind of situation that often happens within art education contexts. Mm. It happens because Asiko was committed to actually making these dialogues appear to the people who are having them. Not to paper over them, but to deal with conflict and difference in a way that was respectful of everybody without prejudice. It would have been very easy in that context for everyone to gang up on this young Catholic man. I think BC's sensitivity was to say he might be expressing a deep-rooted prejudice, but we have to deal with him as he is, not as we want him to be. And we have to try and find some methods where a conversation can begin between these two individuals who are also passionately fond of each other. And a discovery has threatened the friendship. So it's one of those sidelights. It had nothing to do with the formal educational process. But it was something that I was witness to and had conversations with BC about. And what struck me was the incredible humanity that she brought to an understanding of what would have been a very difficult process. There's one thing that I want to read to you, which is a reflection that we made on our time in um, Addis Ababa. This is actually a picture that we were together in the Ethiopian National Museum. It's Lucy. And I call this little text Lessons from Lucy, Rocks in Asiko, Addis Ababa. There was a time when we did not stand on our two feet. Then came the time of the savannah. Trees gave way to grass. We came down from the branches. We learned the virtue of swiftness, of gauging distance, of scanning over the sharp tops of the blades of tall grass. Our spines were not used to this. Dinkanesh, the marvelous one, the one who would also be known as Lucy. So Lucy is an Australian Australopithecus afarensis, is a hominid ancestor for all of us. And um, she was found in Ethiopia and um, she is the first, we could say metaphorically, the first person who stood with an erect spine, and that's why we have them. There's a beautiful display of the, um, the, the um, cervical span 
of the hominid evolution till we reach the time where women who stand erect can give birth and it becomes an incredibly difficult process because that is why we have the heads that we have which, which are extremely large, which is why we think more. It's because Lucy stood up instead of bending down. So we all owe our intelligence to this African woman. Um, <clears throat> anyway, she taught us to balance our weight on our hind legs, to free our front hands, to straighten the spine. And then everything changed. Our heads had to learn to grow after we were born because a biped woman's birth canal cannot take a big-headed baby. That made room for thoughts and questions. Two legs became hands and began pointing, picking, choosing, holding, throwing. The entire history of philosophy can be written in terms of what the hand can do or what it can point at. Our new hands told us the difference between who we were and what we held. We saw the earth meet the sky at the horizon, which is what you do when your head becomes level with the horizon. We acquired shadows beneath our feet at midday. We understood the directions. We turned our eyes and saw the heavens turn with us. We lifted our eyes and talked to the sun and the moon. We met face to face. If you ask me, that's what contemporary art is still doing. We're still trying to figure out how to deal with the idea of a stance that gives us a horizon. It takes going to Africa to make up a fable to realize that contemporary art has a three and a half million year old history. If an artist is someone who changes the way we see things, then Dinkinesh, also known as Lucy, our Australopithecus afarensis hominin ancestress from the Hadar formation and the Afar triangle and what is Ethiopia today, is someone we might designate as the mother of all artfulness. Her performances of standing up on the savannah changed the way we see things forever. So that's a picture that Tamar took actually of me, Jibesh. And since we are three people with one woman in the center always, Monica, this was our way of remembering her. Okay. Um, because Monica was not with us on this trip, so we had to take a photograph of rocks and this would do. Thank you, Tamar, for the picture. <laughs> Two of us in Rocks Media Collective traveled from Delhi to Addis Ababa to witness and participate in the sixth Asiko Summer School for Artists. Our week in Addis brought us face to face with a new generation of artists and curators from Africa. With them, we encountered the question, and it's come up already, of braiding, of what do you do with hair? of weaving strands of hair or fabric into thick, knotted forms that created crowns, hoops, and amazing sculptural patterns. But we began being interested in something more than just the, the, the visual accoutrement of what can be done with hair. We learned then that sculpture begins with the body, that braiding and the repeated act of weaving strands of hair constitutes an early form of coding which creates its own rhythms, geometries, topologies, and algorithms. There was a young designer there, Nonsikolelo Mutiti from Zimbabwe, who lives in New York. She was, she, I think she did this book. And she had this incredible interest in the relationship between 
hair encoding and programming algorithms that can talk about strands and weaving. Um, and I found it very productive to learn from her about how she thought about relationships between unrelated things. Braiding is about joining and separation, about knots that bind and the undoing of knots. In braiding, we found an everydayness and an abundant particularity that all artistic work should have. Everydayness, particularity, a very generous temporal horizon, and the persistence of everything that remains as a preparation for the future. That is what our time in Addis Ababa gave us, what Asiko gave us, and what BC conspired to give us. And now we are braided forever to Africa, to the planet, to you, to BC. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Eddie and Shuda. I mean, you know, the whole experience of Asiko left one constantly with the hairs on your neck rising. You would spend the whole time, every day, having an experience of that kind of profundity where you thought, oh my God, contemporary art started with Lucy. Or, um, oh my God, you know, everybody here has come in such an extraordinary way from all over the continent and what it has taken and what it has cost to get here is so moving and so awe-inspiring. And out of that, was one, one was pushed out of time and out of place. All of us were constantly pushed out of time and out of place because everybody was out of their comfort zone. People had come from all over and all our traditional categories and temporalities and periodizations um, got scrambled. So, so as you've both indicated so beautifully, it, it kind of profoundly transformative. Um, but I'm going to open it up now because you might have questions you would like to ask or observations you'd like to make if there's anybody who'd like to um, participate in this conversation. We'd love to hear from you. Some of you might, in fact, have been on the program or um, have heard about it or similar sorts of experiments. Yes, there's somebody over there. Well, uh, <clears throat> thank you very, very much for sharing your experience because I, I'm one of the people who would have loved to be there, but I didn't get to, 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 uh, to go because I didn't have the time. But I met Bisi one time in, in Paris where she was presenting Asiko at the African Art, in, uh, African Art Book Fair uh, at uh, La Colonie. Uh, and and she, uh, I just uh, want to say that I had the same experience of uh, yeah, this generosity that was like, I think the word, uh, even though I met her very shortly, mm. we had a lunch together and uh, I was just like struck by, by that generosity that she could, uh, that, that she had naturally. Mm. Um, and, and also, um, yeah, it's just interesting with the world, world making that you were, were talking about, um, mm. how, 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 um, how do you see that continuing? I mean, I would like to, to hear like about how would you like to take that into the future? Should I? Yes, uh, please. Well, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a concern that we've had in our practice for a while, which is, the, um, which is to unsettle. And I, I must say that this also comes from another great Nigerian who passed this year, Okwe Enwazor. 
And he taught us many things. And I, we know him for a very long time. And he was partially responsible for the crime of Ruxmeda Collective being artists. Um, but one of the things he said, which I will never forget, is that there has to be a will to globality. There has to be a desire to understand and remake the world. And he said that in the parts of the world that we come from, let's say the city that I live in, in Delhi, or Africa, or parts of Latin America, we see ourselves as the objects of the world often. We are accustomed to seeing ourselves as the objects of the world. It is people like Okui and BC who gave me the understanding that we have to start seeing ourselves as subjects of the world. As the, the great advantage of living on a spherical planet is that you can claim a center wherever you are, right? So if you are in Johannesburg, that is a center of the world. You cannot understand you know, the last 300 years of the world's history without understanding which ships came and docked and left which harbor in South Africa. Um, similarly, in India, you cannot, I mean, India is, is an abstraction, but let's say the city that I come from, Delhi. I now look at my city as, as a center of the world, where the world met many times in the past and will meet again many times in the future. This frees us from two things. It frees us from the feeling that we are outside the story of the world. The story of the world is something that's written across two sides of the Atlantic Ocean, right? And it also then allows us to see London or New York as nice provincial cities, which are also part of this world that we can all claim for ourselves. And I think that if there is any virtue in contemporary art, it is to give the world the possibility of thinking that we have to, to try and understand that the planet is made up of many different claims to centrality. And that those claims and their collisions, their contentions, their coalitions are what makes not just today, but the history of the world what it has been and will make the future. Contemporary art is one of the places where this understanding can begin to arrive if all goes well, intuitively. And then we can build from that understanding. And this is not a happy picture. It's not a picture that says, oh, we're all one planet, right? It's to say we're actually many planets. We're many planets sitting on one Earth. And we're all trying to figure out the future for ourselves. And that capacity to think of a multiplicity of futures is what's I mean, it's, it's what keeps me awake. From your perspective, Eddie, li sitting as, I mean, British, sitting in Texas, connected, you know, in multiple ways to the African diaspora, and how would you address that question of world making? Well, I think it's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a great question. It's uh, a, ve a very important question. I think BC's, I think, um, I think, um, I think I've, I've I mentioned this in my opening comments that I thought I think BC's vision was uh, an uncommon one because I think she, 
I think she turned on his head dominant notions of what's internet of the of, uh, of what's international or of how the international is constructed. Um, we're used to we're used to thinking of New York and London as sites of validation for artistic pra for, for, for artistic practice. So if somebody makes it, if somebody makes it in New York or London, then that gives them a kind of a global a global success or global status. Um, I think one one of the things that Beatty was able to do so so extraordinary with such extraordinary success is she kind of um, she had no time for this these linear notions of mm. the international. Mm. You know, I mean, she was very much aware of that for somebody in Mozambique, <coughs> you know, um, the idea of Ga I mean, Ghana was international. Ghana was was also international. Mm. You know, so it's like she 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 kind of transformed this idea that that. In that to talk in terms of the international, we had to we had to think in these in these kind of very linear mm. kind of east west global terms. You know, she, mm. she she had no time for that kind of thinking. You know, because she was aware that that um, uh, say I mean somebody in some part of East Africa mm. or whatever. You know, some like uh, somewhere somewhere else in West in West Africa spoke to the international. You know, so this Pan African this kind of continental. Pan-Africanism, you know, this was central to her thinking. I, I you know, I, I think it's, I think we live in a world, you know, in which linear thinking is 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 easiest, mm. you know. And I think I think the, the great thing about the project was that it was non-linear yeah, thinking. Exactly. You know, yeah. it, it thought about things outside of yeah. the box that I mentioned earlier. You know, it's like, and mm. um, you know, I mean, I'm with you about the, pa I mean, the the whole passport thing. You know, it's like. Um, one of the one of the difficulties I find in um, I mean th this is a sidebar, but I just mention it just for, for a few moments. You know, one of the difficulties I find in um, traveling in different Afri African countries is that although the borders that uh, that are now in place are relatively recent constructions, I mean, of course, one can speak of the integrity of certain certain parts of the parts of the country. Um, I did mention Ethiopia, you know. So there's a kind of a there's a kind of border integrity to certain parts of of the African continent. But by, by and large, the um, you know a lot of what we see as borders um, um, are, are recent constructions. Mm. You know, the, the, these are not constructions from no, thousands of no. years ago. <laughs> these are yeah. these these go back a century or so, mm. or you know, or, or half century. Yes, yes, yeah. or in some respects, less time. So. It's quite depressing in some respects to see that th these borders are wedded to in this kind of Brexit-like way. You know, yeah. if we can evoke Brexit at the present time, you know, there's this like, some idea that that a, a borders system. somehow sacrosanct, sacrosanct, you know, and need to be maintained and defended, uh, defended at all costs. You know, I, I mean, Beast was here, um, you know, to to. to um, to kind of advance a different, a different yeah. agenda. Yeah, I think there's a person who had a hand up there. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, what I have to say might come across a bit controversial, but um, um, being here um, and upstairs, you know, one has to, you know, the idea of having a passport in the sense whereby an African artist from the continent having to make it. Um, their art has to be curated by someone that is 
not of the heritage of an African. And so how, as we, as people, you know, how um, are we able to overcome that, you know, in respect of how we sell our arts from the African continent? Well, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting because, of course, you're talking about the art market and how the art market functions and how Africa's positioned. And we've all watched, haven't we, over the last few years, this kind of explosion <coughs> in the African art market and, you know, the way in which this is written about. But, of course, when you look at most of the galleries that are in even a fair like this one, so many of them are not African-based. Um, and so the market... The, the market within Africa is extremely undeveloped for various reasons. South Africa is somewhat of an exception, but even then, you know, the gallery system in South Africa is tiny compared, when you think about the wealth that's in South Africa and the wealth of creativity that's in South Africa, is still relatively tiny. I mean, I, I learned a lot about Nigeria from BC. Mm. Uh, where are you from in, in Africa? Did, Ghana. From Ghana, okay. So, um, so yeah, Ghana might have a completely different co uh, uh, context, but I mean, BC always used to rail against the fact that there's so much money in Nigeria and what rich people wanted to do was buy private jets. I think there are more private jets in Nigeria than in any other country in the world. But to get anybody in Nigeria to invest money in art was an incredible challenge. And going back to your point, Eddie, I mean, if BC did had not had the incredible support of Alan Atsui, who has nothing short of magnificent mm. in terms of keeping Africa <coughs> going over the years, I think it would have been really, really difficult for um, for Asika to happen. So you had a brilliant artist like Earl with incredible, um, you know, generosity mm. uh, to support. But um, you know, I think I think things are changing. Bear was talking a little bit yesterday about how things are changing and new infrastructures are emerging in places like Nigeria. But still, given the amount of money that is washing around in a country like Nigeria. Um, you know, one does wonder, you know, at what point do you, there's a whole infrastructure developed, if not a market on the one hand for artists, but all sorts of things from community centres to public collections to archives to museums to ways of treasuring and nat natural resources to skills providing programmes, whatever. Um, so, I mean, there's huge amounts of work and she would talk a lot about this, huge amount of work. This is why she was so wedded to the idea that yes, she was never against, as you say, people making their work, selling it in the mm. world, wanting people to, you know, and then she promoted so many artists in their international careers. But at the same time, the desperate need for people to come back and feed into the infrastructures and raise consciousness within Africa so that those markets and those circuits of exchange could emerge and develop. Um, but yes, you point to, you know, whose fault this is, these are old historical relationships. Mm. You know, if we can critique capitalism, we can critique neoliberalism, we can critique the ways in which the market has functioned, we can go along doing all of those things. But the fact is, you're right, that it's very, very hard uh, for African artists to make a living out of art. It's, the infrastructure is lacking, the um, markets are, are small, and as soon as most artists make it, they're out of there. So, um, you know, these are the problems I think we deal with. I don't know if yes, well, well, I mean, just a, just, a, just, a, just a small point to add to that. Well, well, generally in some ways it's a reiteration of your perfectly expressed points, Tamar. Um, 
Um, I mean, one thing that became clearer, clearer, I mean, had an appreciation of this for varying degrees over a number of, number of years, but one thing that became clearer to me during the, the workshops the, uh, um, was that um, opportunities for emerging writers, emerging curators within their respective countries of Africa were extraordinarily insufficient. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, we can hardly stress, we can hardly stress this in period of language. You know, if somebody wishes to be a curator in any given country, their opportunities are almost at zero. Yeah, but I mean, the, opportun the opportunities to write critically, critically about, um, about the histories of art within any given country, the, 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 the opportunities to, talk, to, to write about the practices of an artist, you know, these opportunities were, were quite but, but um, uh, uh, sparse. Given that, I was always struck by the extraordinary resourcefulness that people had within those mm. circumstances. So, for example, the young Cameroonian woman who curated in her local school an exhibition about the girls in Nigeria that the um, that had been the Chibuk girls, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly yeah. by Boko Haram, or people who created their own radio stations and community centres, and I mean, you know, this is the other thing: is does art practice always have to happen? in those circuits of exchange which are the contemporary art market where named individuals become these kind of soaring, you know, these careers. And this was another thing that I really learned is that, and maybe this is just, maybe this is an indulgent position here, I sit on my professorship in London, okay, you know, uh, I'm, I'm self-aware of that. But at the same time, the amount of incredible energy and resourcefulness that people have to turn their own situations into something productive and to make spaces for art, contemporary art, to function as a critical practice, to me was always awe-inspiring. So mm. she was also very interested in trying to get us to think outside of the box of only the contemporary art world to the different ways in which art and community interface and speak. But also, I mean, I think one of the th conversations that I witnessed her having with a young artist who was saying much of the same things that you pointed out. And I remember very clearly, she said, what have you got to lose? And he said, nothing. He said, do you realize that that is the greatest advantage that you have? That there are people exactly like you at your stage in the practice who are right now in London and in Paris or wherever it is that they are, and they're full of anxiety because they think they will suffer, that their careers will not take off. She said to this young man, you, on the other hand, have the entire world ahead of you because you don't have these practical resources that will make you do some things. Therefore, you can think much more ambitiously in your mind. And that will change the way you see your own practice. And it's not something dissimilar, because I come from a situation where you meet any young artist, they're always complaining, right? No infrastructure, <coughs> no places to show, an indifferent art market, hostile institutions, all of that. I mean, I, I see that and I hear that every day. But I've learned from people like BC to, to turn the question around to them and say, what do you have to lose, right? And I can say that because me, my practice, Rux and, and Rux Media Collective, we are now of some 
significance, I am told, in the world. Pain, even. Right? <laughs> Whatever it is. But we are where we are because we were recognized by an African curator. There was no Indian curator, and there are many who are very proficient, very erudite, who are very well placed in the world, who 25 years ago would have recognized what we did as art, or that it could be art. In fact, it took the presence of a man who never stopped seeing himself as African. Mm. And he would always tell me, I come from the Kalabar coast. That's where I come from, and that's where I see the world from. So this business of what I'm saying, that to see the world from where you are. And he says, I know what that means because nobody ever saw me as a curator until I did. And then he, that's something that he's taught me to be then, to, to the, and BC furthered that impression that you have to look exactly at the situations where it appears that nothing is happening. I grew up in a city where I used to think nothing will ever happen to us, right? We will sit and stare at the fan that doesn't move because there's a power cut. Nothing will ever change. And then it changed, because, but it took somebody else who went through a similar, or other people went through similar experiences to do that. So now, when I'm a curator, that is what I do. And it didn't come to me from the established canon of what curating came to be. Don't forget, the Documenta 11 changed contemporary art. I still remember people writing reviews in the New York Times. There was, there was a long review that said, basically, do we now have to research what art means in Dakar or Accra? Eureka. <laughs> I mean, this was seen as a sort of challenge and an insult to the fact that the people who, who establish criterions of quality now have to rethink what modernity or what contemporaneity means. The answer to that question was actually yes, right? Because I've grown up reading the history of modern art or contemporary art in Europe and America. And that I accept as a normal, natural thing to do. So I don't see what the problem is if people here have to do the same. But that would never have happened without, without Document 11 being what it was. Yeah, well, so certainly I, I, I you know, uh, I, I um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think both your points are uh, extraordinarily, extraordinarily well made. And I, 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 and I think I see one of the, Great sense of the seeker, as, 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 as you've both both been reiterating, was the ways in which BC BC was able to work with others and present alternatives. Mm. You know, it's like um, um, there are. You know, she she was she was insistent that there were ways of getting things done. You know, that um, that um, things were not. Things were not emphatically hopeless in any in any mm -hmm. sense, and that and that uh, and that uh, was possible for young mm -hmm. curators and also others, yeah. artists and writers, to make contributions. And I was I was reminded just as you were talking, you know, I was reminded as of um, the ways in which 
Um, I mean, if we, if we time travel back to Britain, back to late 70s Britain, mm. the presence of black artists was not a given. I mean, the art world didn't, didn't, didn't accept they existed. Mm. You know? I mean, of course, I mean, there might be people working, mm. but in terms of accepting, accepting contributions of black British artists or, or artists from other parts of the world who were settled in Britain, this was not a given, you know. I mean, the, the Tate mm. didn't 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 think they existed. You know, the major institution didn't think they existed. The art schools didn't mm. think they existed. This was an emphatic state of affairs, you know. I mean, um, um, we think about about um, about about art from the modern 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 period, present day, from Africa. We don't have to, to go back that far. I mean, as you say, I mean, mm. we can we can look at uh, document of eleven in two thousand and two. I think it was. Um, you know, as 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 perhaps being a, a key moment of sea change, but mm. but you know, the the contemporary Af artists yeah. of Africa was not was not thought to exist until yeah. relatively recently. Yeah. You know, so uh, the, the, there are ways yeah. in which these mindset these mindsets um, these mindsets have been formidable stumbling blocks, but mm. um, um, there there have been some shifts in them. Mm. Interestingly, I mean, even I mean, just because of the sort of work and thinking I've been doing in relation to Oakley and Wiesor, and you know, recently, of course, Documentary Eleven would not have existed without the Johannesburg Biennale. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the Johannesburg Biennale was the first kind of model of, re of thinking of the platforms. Yeah. Yes, and, and that was only five years earlier. Yeah, exactly, ninety-seven. So that happened on the continent with yeah. an African co curator yeah. who was blamed for being too European at that moment, or too <laughs> American, or whatever, coming onto the continent to work in Africa, and then that gets fed in. So yeah. these things, these are the worlds that are being being made mm. and troubled and um, you know all our old as we were saying earlier all our old geographies and temporalities um, get turned upside down so so my think my feeling is it's a privilege to work from a place which is not already you know overdetermined mm. in traditional and historical ways and from those places we can learn to speak in a way that is so fundamentally radical, mm. not only for ourselves, but for our whole understanding of the world. And, and you know, I think that Asiko has certainly <coughs> made a huge contribution in enabling us to do that. I have no doubt that many of the young people we've, who've been through the Asiko process will make a fundamental difference to yeah. the world of contemporary Absolutely. art in the future. And already are doing so. Yeah. I, I just want to say one last thing, which is to remind us of the mischievousness of BC. <laughs> she, she said, so you're the history man to me. You know a lot of stuff about the past. I said, so will you do a history lesson to some of these kids? I said, all right. And she said, so, because she, I once had a conversation with her about the fact that there had been African kings and African kingdoms in India in medieval times. And she'd asked me, so were these good guys? I said, not all of them. You know, they were like kings. They're just, you know, they, they came, they ruled, they conquered, and they did what kings do. She said, tell them about this. And don't forget to tell them that some of them were ruthless and horrible. <laughs> because it's very important yeah. for young African artists to understand <laughs> that Africans could be powerful mm. and just as evil as everybody else. Because unless they understand that, they won't know what equality means. Mm. And I mean, 
And also because she was absolutely profoundly anti-essentialist. Yes. She was not interested in people walking around, you yeah. know, talking about some pure space called Africanness yes. or Africanity or whatever. Even though she was interested in Pan-Africanism as a historical phenomenon, she was extremely critical about, you know, any kind of essentialism. Mm. And uh, so she would have loved that. And interestingly enough, just quick, another quick aside, um, she was very interested, obviously, in gender and women artists and women artists on the continent. And mm. there were often some very, very testing, uh, you know, discussions. And her favorite article that she would ask all the participants to read was Linda Nochtlin's Why Have mm. There Been No Great Women Artists from 1971. And she would then make them think about you know, extrapolate from that to think about an African context. What would be the institutional impediments? What would be the cultural and ideological impediments that stopped women from self-actualizing within the African context? The context. But she's very happy to take a text by a Jewish New York American woman yeah. to, through which to think that. And she was nothing was out of bounds in in that way. She she was never going to have some kind of mm. a limited notion of what was available um, to read or think with. Yeah. Somebody here was Somebody had a question. Two, two, two of you. Okay. Um, I just want to say thank you very much, first of all, for this incredible talk. Um, I never heard of ASICO before I came. I just researched it as I came. So, um, so it was amazing to hear about Missy and what she's accomplished. Um, as you said, you hope that this does not just fade away. Yeah. And I, and I trust it won't, because I think she's laid an incredible foundation um, for, the, for the future generation to carry it on. Um, but I want to ask, um, could it possibly go beyond um, the older generation, which she um, was uh, aiming at as, an, as artists, so the youth, I guess, um, but go further back and use actually younger children where before they are formed, their ways are formed and before their minds have been set yeah. as though this is the only way art is curated or art, what art is, could it possibly um, go further, well, to the younger generation? Could it, is that even possible? Because that's what I desire it to be. Because it, it would mean that we get them younger well, well I, think that's, I think that's a wonderful project and a project for somebody to, to do. It wasn't her project. She was interested in young adults. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, it's a project that there, I'm sure there are multiple educators across the continent working in interesting and radical ways. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know about them, but yeah. Yeah. Ibrahim Mahama was talking about it in Ghana. Yeah. In the in the last panel, okay. So it's a, we have another question here. Yeah. Um, a kind of personal question in a way. Um, you talked a lot about the wonderful principles that you've encountered, contributed to, discussed. I just wondered. There were a couple of mentions of people you've encountered that were uh, being taught or wanted to learn or debate in the programs. Can you remember any individual encounters with any one of them that really resonated with you? Um, just as a recollection, in a way. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we all have them. I can think of a few. Um, uh, I remember one very, very uh, difficult moment. This was in Maputo, where a young man who was doing very, very well. The problem is often with artists who are doing well, because he was doing well with a series of formulae which involved African women with big bums, perky nipples, and red lips. 
and he was pot-boiling this stuff mm. and actually had come quite successfully to Asiko and quite confident about his practice and he was, you know, basically um, quite satisfied with what he was doing. And he was pulled through the mill by everybody on the on the program, BC included. And they developed, mm. they developed a very because she was not. Yes, she did have that maternal thing, but she was very she was very harsh. tough. Yeah. She was harsh, and she would say, "We're going to take him down." That was her <laughs> phrase, <laughs> and everybody would say, "We're going to take him down," and then the whole group would say, would lay into this person, and. You know, say, if you're going to make art like that, you've got to tell us why. We're not interested in curio art. We don't care how many of those you sell. We're not interested in how much they get on the market. But you are going to have to defend to this group of people here what it is that you're doing with perpetuating those kinds of cliches. It would not have been just in those words. I'm summarizing something that mm. would have taken days and weeks. I don't know what happened to him. He might have gone back because there was also another argument at the time that some people would say, but hey, this guy's feeding his family and he's got a whole lot of people to feed and that's what sells. So who are you to come with your critique from the contemporary art world and feminism and gender, et cetera, et cetera. And I do remember, I remember feeling very uncomfortable as a Western feminist in that situation mm. and thinking about, well, you know, I, I, that's, that's where you learn as well as you're teaching. Because in the classroom in London, I'm, you know, I'm right there with the feminist critique. But in that context, in the Maputo um, old colonial fort where we were sitting, and this guy was, you, you, you realize you have to recalibrate. So that would be one of my examples. Well, I spoke about one of them already, so. Yeah. Did well, certainly, uh, just, uh, I'm just, at, just from what you've said to Mark just there, it occurred to me, um, I mean, this is a sidebar perhaps, but let me, let me say it because it's, uh, it's come to me as you, as you, mm -hmm. you, you were talking, was um, there were, as much as there were positive interactions between, between the, the, the art school and respective organizations or operations within the spaces in which they were located, there were also tensions. Mm. There were unmistakable tensions. You yeah. know, I think, I think the dominant university, respective university, was, yeah. was, was often the site of some tension, yeah. you know, because in some ways, uh, you know, the art school model was there to kind of, um, um, I mean, if not, under, I mean, not, not so much undermine what they, what they, they were doing, but it was there as a challenge in some respects. And so there was almost a kind of a tactile, tactile mm. tension there frequently. Um, uh, of course, you know, the, the roving Pan-African workshop model is so, I mean, I, again, I'll start off saying this, that it was such a kind of a revolutionary, as in so much change that was there, because it's, um, we know when we travel, we travel to respective countries in Africa, you know, it's not long before you would go to the National Museum or the National Gallery or mm. the space at which, you know, the space of national, yeah, anyway, mm. National Museum work. And these spaces are always set up in these kind of very blinkered linear terms where they're there to tell the story of Nigeria, tell the story of Ghana, tell the story of Ethiopia, 
um, and they're not really interested in anything that anything that complicates or or kind of in, in, invades that kind of that um, um, sing, that linear narrative. Um, um, if you like, the national museum is there for the glorying of the of the of a nation state. I mean, the, the nation state might only be sixty years old, but it's still there to be glorified. Um, what we had with with Beatles workshop, uh, Art School was something which rode a coach and horses through that mentality. Yeah. You know, yeah. she was not interested in any kind of national, any any yeah. stories of national nation building. If that's not a tautology, you know, she was she was interested in a different set of narratives. Yeah, you know. No, and um, you're right. It did set up all sorts of tensions and anxieties sometimes with local uh, professionals and communities because there were always these conversations, weren't they, that would set up. Yeah. I'm aware that of the time. I, I think. Uh, we over we over time, aren't we? Yeah. So um, thank you both uh, very very much. Well, thank, and you thank you all for coming. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> thank you. <for> <laughs>